Today's word comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. We are starting a new series today. Um, it will be on a very famous portion of scripture, um, which is the Ten Commandments. And um, I'm calling this series Gospel Completes Law. Um, we live in a very uh, you know, anti-law period of time and in our culture. And, um, you know, it's, a, this, it's, it's often seen as that, that this time we live in is, is a post-Christian time. And one of the, 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 one of the marks of that time is that we really hate law. And I think part of it is not, it isn't despite that um, we be- believe, we, you know, that so many people today don't believe in God anymore, or the Bible. It's because of it. It's because there is, you can't, you don't get away from law simply because you no longer are religious. Um, people just believe that, you know, all, there's always going to be laws and rules uh, that are expected of us. The only real question is, um, are those laws and rules, are they really true? And are they worthy of your life? And today we're, we live in a very cynical and actually very angry and suspicious time where um, if your boss or your boss's boss or if the government you know, wants, you know, want, has certain laws and rules and, 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 and ex- expectations of behavior, we're not even sure if uh, you know, th- th- those rules are good. And, those, and it's not a coincidence that we, that we feel this way you know, kind of across the board because no longer is there like a, a, a light that, that there's a law that really is above us and it's good. And so we're living in this time and, and, and um, you know, we, we are a gospel-centered church. And by being a gospel-centered church, sometimes people think that the gospel is against the law. That is not true. It, there isn't, some people have this view that like everything important happens, starts in, in the New Testament. That is not true. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. The gospel does not throw away the law. The gospel completes the law. And we can come, and so the, we must, you know, if we're going to live a life in Christ, and we're going to live a life that's going to be compelling and that really reflects the beauty of our God and serves our neighbors, we're not going to do it against God's law. We're actually going to learn how to obey God's law but not do it out of legalism. This is important. And so, actually, this first message, I'm not even going to be preaching on one of the commandments. I'm actually preaching on the prologue to the commandments. And inside this prologue to the commandments is really 
a, 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 an orientation of how to approach God command, God's commandments and understand that we are in covenant, a covenant fulfilled now, a new covenant fulfilled because of one greater than Moses, that is Jesus, right? And so let's get into this message. Um, I'm going to do this in three parts as always. Part one, lawlessness in life leads to oppression, all right? Lawlessness in life leads to oppression. I'm going to unpack a little bit more of something that I, that I was saying here uh, um, in, in my introduction. Part two, part two, um, the goodness of the law yet incomplete, okay? The goodness of the law yet incomplete, and then um, I want to close by saying, becoming fully human through obedience by love. You can't get to obedience by love only by the law. But there is something to obey when you have a relationship to God through the gospel. And so the law cannot be dispensed with, but we must learn to have a new relationship to law and because we have a relationship to God through grace. And then it will reshape who we are that we don't think about law through... Oh, just got to do this. But, from the, but because we now the law is given by someone supremely good and who's given us infinite love. Okay? So part one, uh, lawlessness in life leads to oppression. So um, I want to give you, I wanna, let me start with this quote. Let's see if our, our, our brothers can put it up there. Um, this is from Philip Yancey. And, and uh, you know, I've introduced him recently in a book, an incredible book that he wrote, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace? But this is from another book that he wrote called Rumors of Another World. And so much of it is about just like, can, you can see senses of God everywhere in the world, um, even if you don't know the Bible. That's what much of that book, it's actually a brilliant book. But um, I want to share this particular quote with you because it's relevant to this issue of God's law and how we are, are trying to run away from it. So let's, let's, um, here's what he says. No society in history has attempted to live without a belief in the sacred, not until the modern West. That's, that's us. Hmm? Such a leap has consequences that we are only beginning to recognize. We now live in a state of confusion about the big questions that have always engaged the human race. Questions of meaning, purpose, and here's the, here it is. Here's, here's where... The law is important. And morality. Meaning, purpose, and morality. I want to just say a little something about this. Um, morality, it's almost like morality. It's, kind of, it's considered almost a bad word today. Morals, right and wrong. Don't we all just know it and we just can just feel what's right and wrong? And the answer is no. <laughs> if you do not have a clarity of what is right and wrong, you don't know what's better or worse, what's more worthy of unworthy, what is more beautiful, what's more ugly, what is good and what is evil. If you don't know what is greater, how can you know what your purpose is? How can you have deeper meaning if your life is not given toward that which is most supremely worthy and beautiful and good? The law and morality, all these things hinge on that. Let's con it continues. Eliminating the sacred changes the story of our lives. <laughs> A lot of people today think that sacred is, is irrelevant to our life. That, that's, that's absolutely wrong. If there's nothing sacred in your life, you just completely changed everything in your life just changed. And if you've never ex experienced or known anything about what is sacred, 
You don't even know what you're missing out on. And so he goes on. Most people in history have experienced this world with its pleasures and pains, its births and deaths, and loves and passages as linked to the sacred invisible world. There's a sacred invisible world. That is not an opinion. You can say, I don't believe in that. But if you don't believe in that, it has consequences. No longer, or for many at least, now we are born, play, work, accumulate possessions, relate to one another, and die with no consolation that what we do matters ultimately or has any meaning beyond what we assign it. So, you know, we have a couple in our church who is fighting, who is fighting um, mightily to make sure that these two, she's carrying twins, and then if she doesn't, isn't careful, she could lose these twins. Is that worthy? <laughs> she's, she's telling me things like, well, you know, doctors say, well, one option is, you know, you could abort and you don't have this problem anymore. <laughs> that's, 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 um, that's not a far off, that's not a far off question. This is a highly relevant question. Now, is what Tiffany and Walt are doing, is this good? You know? There's so many ramifications. Um, there's so many ramifications. Literally, life and death, and the quality of our life and death, and what we think our life is about, hangs on whether we know what is truly right and what is truly wrong. What we're talking about here is the law. So I want to, um, well, I, I start off by saying that if you have lawlessness in life, and you don't know what, there's a clarity of law, what you end up in is a kind of oppression. What I want to offer you is, um, I want to give you an example here. So my wife and I are watching, um, uh, we're watching this Korean drama, all right? And uh, it's called I Remember You. And um, it's, and, you know, my wife and I, we, you know, I, I was interested in it simply because the, the whole thing is, is, is an odd story. Um, it is about, it has something to do with the serial murderer, and then there's a, a police team trying to hunt down the serial murderer. Okay? Now, something, you know, this isn't the most important thing that happens in it, but, you know, so I hope I won't give away too much, too much here, but there's this there's a remarkable thing that happens in the middle of this drama. There's this police team, there's a crack special detective unit. Somewhere in the middle of the story, this, what we find out is one of the members, one of the cops, commits a fairly heinous felony. <laughs> and why does it commit that fa fairly, um, um, uh, this heinous felony? Because as the story unfurls, you find out that he grew up in a highly abusive family. His parents were horrible and abused him. <laughs> and then, somewhere along the line, he met this serial murderer who came from this incredibly abusive background. And then the serial murderer seems to have this kind of intuition, this gift, when he meets people who have this evil tendency to do things like this. And he knew that his parents were wickedly abusive, and he murdered this guy's parents. <laughs> and in doing so, he uh, liberated this, um, this, this, um, pers this person um, from that horror. <laughs> and then later on, as he grew into a young man, he became a police officer. 
and a really good police officer to end up on this crack detective unit. And then later on, um, when this, when this uh, person who liberated him, who was quite evil, but did this thing for him, which was done out of a good intention, and which did something good for his life, guess what? He felt that he deeply owed him a debt. And so he commits this crime for the serial murder. That's what he did. <laughs> now let me ask you this question. Is that good? <laughs> no, that's not good. How do you know that? How do you know that? <laughs> you know what happens? Because this is a, if, if, if you're not, you know, from, you know, East Asia, like Koreans are highly oriented toward obligation. If someone does you an incredible good deed, you know what, you owe them. That's a piece of moral, it's like, what kind of a person are you if you're disloyal to this person who did something really good for you? And so now you owe them this incredible debt. And this person felt this unbelievable moral weight even though he's a top-level police officer to commit a pretty terrible crime. Is that bad? How do you know? Let me give you a little bit different example. It's on this a little bit more in our context, all right? Um, so there's a player um, who's a baseball player on a local team, the Oakland A's. So I don't know, if, if the, I don't know how many baseball fans we have in, in, our, in our congregation. I'm a huge baseball fan, and I don't know if you know this right now, there's an unbelievable scandal that's going on throughout baseball. It's a big, big deal. And it started because there was a player who currently plays for the A's. His name is Mike Fires. And Mike Fires played on, a world, on the world championship uh, on world championship team, the Houston Astros. And you know what he did? He told one of the, the most influential sports journalists in the country that those guys cheat. They have a systemic way of cheating and sending something that's absolutely illegal in baseball, and they've done it. And so they won the championship. <laughs> they won the championship in 2017, and then he reported this, that journalist wrote this piece, and then basically, you know what, hit the fan all throughout the bay. And then now, all of Major League Baseball is investigating that team. Heads of world, people have lost jobs. And people are questioning whether the World Series they won is even legitimate. And guess what? Then the very next year after that, there was a coach from that team moved to the Boston Red Sox, and the Boston Red Sox won the championship the following year. And now there's an investigation of them. Two World Series... Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the interesting part. Is Mike Fires a hero? What he basically did was he was a corporate whistleblower. <laughs> I mean, you work for companies today. And um, inside your own company, maybe there's something illegal, unethical, and wrong that your bosses condone or look the other way or they're actually deliberately um, perpetuating. Well, in his case, he decided well, a couple years later to blow the whistle on that. You know what's going on right now? There's a whole, and it's not a small group. It's not a small group. There's a huge faction inside Major League Baseball. They think Mike Fires is a snitch and a rat <laughs> and a low human being. <laughs> Do you think that's true? Is he a hero, a courageous moral hero? Or is he some kind of low rat? 
How do you know? Because, you know, if, if everybody just thinks we all know what's right and wrong, do you? And if you do, when it's really, really inconvenient, when it will really, really cost you, do you know how to go to that which is right and wrong? So it's, it's not just knowing. It's having the conviction and the courage. And this is where it's really tremendously important to know that there's a law from God, not from man. Now, I want to say something about, let's get, let's get into this passage. I don't like to wait too long before I get into this passage. And so let's, let me um, explicate a little portion of this passage here. So it's a, it's a strange passage. Moses gathers the whole nation, and then, um, and then he gives you know, the commandments from God. And then, he ex- and then he says this strange portion. Back, you are afraid to come to the mountain. <laughs> and basically, I had to kind of stand before you. And then it comes to this remarkable verse. Um, so verse five. While I stood between Yahweh, that is capital L, Lord is Yahweh, the Lord and you at that time to declare to you to the word of Yahweh, you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up to the mountain. And then this is what he says. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, of the house of slavery. And then the commandments begin. All right? And then you know, verse seven is, you shall know the gods before me. That's the first commandment. We're going to talk about that next week. But it's very important. Most people don't pay attention to that passage right before it. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's the thing I want to tell you about this. Here are these people. They're the, you know, they're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a special covenant with them. He specially chose them. Later on, um, a, an oppressive power so arose in Egypt. Egypt is the most advanced nation of its time. It's the richest, most powerful, most advanced nation of its time. They're this minority people, and they become enslaved. I am God who brought you out of this land of Egypt, and I took you out of slavery, and then God gives these laws, okay? And what does it have to do with us? What does it have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. I want to make a couple points here. Number one, it's very important that the God who gives you the law is not giving you the law because here are my rules, follow my rules, and then you know, you'll just be in trouble because you know, I have power and I can strike you down if you break my rules. It isn't done out of tyranny or power. It's done out of love and goodness. He tells you, I'm the God who has loved you, has redeemed you. Now here, these commands in the framework of my love and my redemption, I'm the one who redeems you. That's the first thing. And so all understanding of God's law has to be understood under a word of grace. That's why gospel, see this is, all these portions, all throughout the Old Testament, you know, what the, you know what the gospel of the Old Testament is? Is you are nothing. You are downtrodden. You are oppressed. You are lost. But I redeemed you. I loved you. I forgave you. I carried you. I bear with you. I forgive your sins. And then I make you new. It's the gospel of the Old Testament. And then the gospel comes even bigger and greater through one greater than Moses. Jesus, that's the first point I want to make. Second point I want to make. You still live in Egypt. (laughs) Did you know that? 
Egypt is not just one nation in one place at one time. Egypt in the Bible is a type. And it's recurring again and again and again. There's certain, there certain names and certain, um, certain visions of life. Babylon. Babylon is an oppressive and wicked people that destroys, that destroys according to their idolatry and crushes people um, through oppression. But Egypt, Egypt is another vision of oppression. So there is no, the theology of Egypt is, there's no God above Pharaoh. Pharaoh is God. So if he says, you, Israelites, well, well sorry, we're going to send you out there and we're going to build a pyramid and, you know, well, you know, we'll just get rid of a bunch of you and that's just what it's going to take. <laughs> there is no law above him. It is the law of Egypt. It is the law of man. It is the law of Pharaoh. Today, Egypt is just called America. <laughs> because America has no God above America and no law above whoever is powerful in your life, then the only law in your life is the law of your Pharaoh, and that's all there is. That's all there is. And you know what that leads to? Oppression. If you go over against whoever the Pharaoh is in your life, well, then, then he can weaponize that against you. Is there a law above the Pharaoh in your life, above your boss, above your dad? <laughs> Maybe your wife is your pharaoh, right? Think about that. I've seen marriages where they're like, okay, I think I see who's the boss of this marriage. It's not Jesus. <laughs> you know, one day a week it's him and six days a week it's her. And occasionally he gets the upper hand two or three days and then he loses the other days, right? So whose laws run your life? And if it's not a law of God, it will be oppression. Now, the implications is they're really huge. I won't unpack all I don't have time today. It has, it has huge implications for our politics. It has huge implications for constitutional government. If there is no God, there is no constitutional government. It's just, just the oppression of the people on top. That's it. They just manipulate. That's it. That's all there is. It's just whoever your pharaoh is. So I want to say this one point, and then let's move to part two. There are three basic approaches toward how you do morality, law, and life, okay? I'm just giving you the first one, lawlessness. <laughs> there is no fundamental law. Human beings just come up with rules. The powerful then impose it on the weak. The powerful, you know, we, have, we have a terminology of cultural imperialism, the people who are powerful impose their culture and their morality upon the weak, and we call this culture, and people resent this. Let me tell you, if there's no God, it's, it's, it's just interesting to me today that so many people who don't believe in God are very upset about cultural imperialism. Like, if there is no God, that's all there is. <laughs> that is all there is. <laughs> there is only cultural imperialism. <laughs> there's only, you cannot escape cultural imperialism unless there is a God whose law is higher. It's the only way, right? So that's the second point. The second way is there's a law of God. And now you talk to your boss and then you can go, there's your boss and then there's a law above him and then you can say, oh, he's a good boss. He's a good boss. I should obey him. I should honor him. How do you like that? 
Oh, he's a good husband. He's a good, oh, he's a good president. You can actually, you meet people. This aspect of their culture, mm, that doesn't, that's not good. But this aspect of their culture is wonderful and beautiful. In fact, it's better than the way we do it. Why? There's a standard. There's a law. So the law above everybody, it's unbelievably liberating. You know that? It's unbelievably liberating. So one of the things that's going on in our culture today, it's incredible to me that you have all these godless people who always think that we got to go up against the man. Based on what? How do you know if the man, so to speak, is not worthy of being the leader? Unless there's a God above the man whose standard can show us there's light to it. Right? So that's the second way. So this is really interesting. If there's a law, transcendent law, by which we can measure. But this, here's the thing. Law cannot heal the human condition. And even if it's the right law and God's law, it's still, you know, it, it leads to all kinds of other things like pharisaical, self-righteousness, and legalism. So there's one, lawlessness. In the Bible, this is considered the worst. <laughs> God despises lawlessness. And then there is a kind of legalism where there's only law but no gospel. That's somewhat better, but it cannot lead to redemption. You cannot get to salvation when there's only law but no gospel. And then the third way, the third way is God's way, which is there's a covenant that is a people are now united to God and they willingly... They willingly marry themselves to God and God marries himself to them. And then by grace and love and truth and gospel, the people can have a power and a heart to obey God's law. And he will give us his own power and his heart to be with us. This is the Bible's way. This is the Bible's way. And so, if you go out in the world and you meet people and you have different, they all have these different kind of like theological or moral worldviews. And a lot of people think like church isn't really relevant. I'm sorry. If you meet a person and they think church is irrelevant, they are really wrong. <laughs> because everybody's living one of these three ways. <laughs> you're either living in lawlessness, you're living according to law, or you're living according to covenant and grace. Which one? And here we go. This is God's way, is covered in grace, okay? Let's go to part two. Let's go to part two. I want to talk to you about the goodness of the law and yet incomplete. And so um, I guess I should have gotten a clicker. We got, we got, I'm going to take you through. What I want to do is take you through uh, John Calvin's three uses of the law. And so I, I, I adapt some stuff from a, he's a, he's a you know, terrific pastor of previous generation. His name is R.C. Sproul. And um, this, this is really famous. This is really famous inside biblical the um, theology coming out of the Reformation. And I want to give you the basic, the three fundamentals used to the law, because a lot of people tend to think, thank you, brother, right? Um, tend to think that, um, you know, this is the Old Testament. Is the law, is it useful? What, 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 what is good about the law since aren't we under grace? And that, if you have this view where you pit grace over against the law, that's a, that you, you have a kind of a cracked biblical theology. There's some truth to that, but not, it's not really the deeper truth. Gospel fulfills the law, 
And um, so I want to give you the three uses of the law, and this is really help. I think this is very helpful. Okay. Working. <laughs> uh, am I doing this right? <laughs> All right. First purpose. The first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. It's to be a mirror. The law of God reflects the perfect righteousness and character of God. Therefore, his law illumines human sinfulness and brings us to a conviction of sin and the need for grace and mercy. There's a lot of uses for this. First of all, you just need to know what is right and what's wrong. But it isn't just about, there isn't just like some, you know, like grand, um, you know, like tablet in the sky that says right and wrong. You know what the law comes from? The law comes from the eternal character of God. It's actually a reflection of God himself. So in this way, the, the deep fundamental principles are not going to change right? because God's not going to change. And so, so that's really, you know, it, one, it illumines this way, but this is really from the born again re- believer's perspective. You know what's really helpful about this? You start to know when you are sinful, <laughs> I don't know if you're, you realize, you're like, I always know. Do you? Do you? Do you always know? And then, and if you try to begin to obey the law, one of the things you're going to find out is you're not good at it, and you're going to fall short in it. And this is a strange use of the law, but really true. One is it helps us to know what is God's character, but two, what we begin to see is we deeply fall short of God's character, and we need we need redemption, right? It's actually, in a sense, the law is one of the first po- um, great po- aspects of the law is it points us to our need for our Redeemer, right? It points us to one who will take us out of enslavement and will be good to us, all right? Let's go to the second one, all right. Oh, wait, oh, well, I should give you this quote. <laughs> this is Augustine, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace, right? Let's go to the second. Second purpose is the restraint of evil. Some call this the civil use of the law. So this is, this is, this is actually very, very relevant to our non-Christian friends and neighbors, right? So the law in and of itself cannot change human hearts. It can, however, serve to protect the righteous from the unjust, the law allows for a limited measure of justice on this earth until the Lord returns. So if there's no law that is above, you know, the, the, the magistrate. So apparently in Egypt, if, um, you know, if you're Pharaoh, you can just pretty much just let slaves die under rocks. But if there's a law saying, sorry, Pharaoh, you can't do that, then there will be a rebellion. There will be a, there'll be a fight, <laughs> And just because there'll be a fight, even if the Pharaoh is an evil man who cares nothing about what is right, he does care about a civil war, right? (laughs) And just because there is law that has some measure of keeping horrific evil and it it pushes things back. So this is partly what it means. So this is the civil use of law and it helps keep social order. Um, And so this is actually very, very helpful. This is is the part even our our non-Christian friends can appreciate. Right? But um, I always think it's kind of crazy that they're, they're always dumping on God's laws. And then it, here in, in, in wiser times, 
people who don't necessarily believe in God, they start to understand that if you don't have religion in culture, that things can get incredibly chaotic. But it isn't just religion. It depends on the nature of that religion. If the religion is go up into this temple and we can sacrifice kids so that we can get the blessings and become rich. Well, that's not a religion that's going to be helpful to restrain evil. But if it's a religion of law and that law is good, then it actually is very, very helpful into the society. And if you look at all like, you know, the, the, the history of, 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 the, of the human race, it is not coincidental that those who have a righteous and good law, they advance as a people. And overly, over time, the oppressive can kind of gain a short-term advantage, but then they tend to fall, right? Second use of law. Third. The third purpose of law is to reveal what is pleasing to God and thus aids in our growth unto holiness and, both, and most, becoming most human like God. We're made in the image of God. God did not give us a law simply because I want to give you some arbitrary rules so you know that I'm in control. I'm actually trying to help you become most beautiful and glorious the way I intended you to be, to be like me. <laughs> the law reflects me. And you can become most human, not in an oppressive, animal, animalistic kind of way where the strong eat the weak, or in a self-righteous way, <laughs> but in a humble and genuinely righteous way. And so... As born-again children of God, this is R.C. Sproul summarizing um, you know, John Calvin's teaching. As born-again children of God, the law enlightens us as to what is pleasing to our Father, whom we seek to serve. The Christian delights in the law as it reflects his character and wisdom. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not if you are afraid of me, if you love me. <laughs> if you love me. See, it's good. By studying or meditating on the law of God, we attend the school of righteousness. We actually need a training, a school of righteousness. We learn what pleases God and what offends Him. The moral law that God reveals in Scripture is always binding on us. So what does He mean by that? There are Old Testament laws. There's just civil laws. They could change. The sacrificial laws, they can change, and they did change. But the moral law reflects God's character. It's eternal. It does not change. And thus, it's always going to shape us and be binding on us, not as oppression, but as a pathway to something beautiful. Our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from our duty to obey it. The law curses us when we fail it. But Jesus came to remove the curse, but not the goodness to obey it. We are justified not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to the law. Jesus justified us by his obedience. Our obedience can never justify us. But because of his obedience, now we have now a new power to become more obedient. To love Christ is to keep his commandments. To love God is to obey his law. Okay. Now let me give you a, a verse from scripture which I love, which I think is really relevant here. And I love this passage. My wife loves this passage. Um, and she likes to cite it every now and then, and I want to share it with you. This is Philippians 4, 8, and 9. And this is, should be the heart and orientation. should be of everybody, but especially of those who have been redeemed through Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, 
whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of shalom, the God of peace, will be with you. Paul can say, if you've seen it in me, then follow it. I, I, I won't say that. <laughs> Hope you, hopefully you've seen some of this in me. All right? But is it true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? You know how you can know what those things are? If you can meditate and know on the law of God, and that's where we're going to go in these upcoming weeks, okay? Now, let me close by giving you the gospel. Uh, we can shut that down now. I want to close by talking about obedience by love. So I want to just, let's start with this. Have you ever been in a time in your life when somebody you owe obedience to, you thought they were excellent, commendable, wise, beautiful. And because of that, you wanted to obey them. You wanted to follow. Did you, anyone ever had that? You had a really smart, incredible teacher, a great coach. And because they were first good to you, when they, you know, they, they said, get up in the morning and you're going to shoot 500 shots before it's even dark, you know, before like light even shows up. And you did that. Did you ever do that? That's, that's a, that seems like a crazy thing to oppose. That's my rule. This is the law of your coach. You ever do that? Like when, when I was in 11th grade, um, my, I, was in, you know, I was in the honors English class, and my teacher was Elsie Takeda, right? She was one of the finest teachers I've ever had. And she would open up literature and the meaning of life. You know, I'm, I'm this kid that loves philosophy and the meaning of life. And she helped me see things that I just couldn't believe. And then she said this thing. There's this essay competition that's near and dear to my heart. There is no, uh, there is no scholarship. There is no reward. It's not famous. <laughs> if you would like to, you know, um, participate, send me a writing sample. You know what? I was thinking there's no money. There's no fame. <laughs> I was thinking like, but you know what? I submitted something because I love her. <laughs> And she worked me really hard. And then, I don't know how many, I have no idea how many people uh, submitted things, right? Um, She chose me, and I was thinking, like, how many people submitted? She chose two kids. I was thinking, like, did two kids submit? (laughs) I had no idea. And up to this point, I had no idea if I'm I'm a decently good writer or not. So, um, you know, I'm a good student, but that doesn't mean you think you're a good writer. And so she chose, you know, she, she chose me to be one of the two. So I would have to meet with her one-on-one. She worked me really hard. She made me revise this essay again and again. And, it was re- and you know what? It never bothered me. Why? Because she was commendable and beautiful. And she chose me to invest in. And the reason I say this to you is in life. This is the God who says, I took you out of Egypt. I took you out of enslavement. Because if you do not have a law that is greater than the law of Pharaoh, that's all you are. You're a slave. It's just a question of which, whose slave are you going to be? And you know what? There doesn't need to be any like chains. 
And there doesn't need to be a whip because as soon as you believe in the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that will be in your mind will whip you, will enslave you. And there only has to be someone greater has to come. And this God didn't just stay in the clouds and didn't make us go up into a mountain that we're afraid of. He came down. And he came down into the muck. And he came down into poverty. And he came into your life, into your muck. He came to die the death you deserve. He came to obey the law that we could not obey. So that his obedience and his righteousness and all his worthiness could be credit to us and the power of his beauty and grace come into us as he has now redeemed us and then taken us through a path that we could be like him. See? This is the God who gives us laws not to oppress you, not to tyrannize you, but to do good to you. He's like, I'll see Takeda, but like to the infinitely better degree. Better than I'll see Takeda. Better than Moses. Better than your boss that you love. Better than your mentor. Better than your father. He's your God. So please go on this journey with me and here, and let's go and walk toward into his heart. The law of God is not just about doing rules. It's walking into his heart and to get that which is commendable and beautiful and worthy and lovely and true and excellent is of him. Hmm. Gives you his laws to make you beautiful and glorious like him. So let's pray and we'll go to, um, come on in. We'll pray and then we'll go to the table of the Lord and let's steal our hearts to follow after an obedience of love. Let's pray. Lord, we are a broken, rebellious, cynical people. We are cynical to our bosses um, because we feel we are cynical to, you know, there's all these things being promised in commercials and we are cynical about them and we are cynical to our political leaders and we're even cynical to you. But we pray, Lord, you would give us a compass and a light and we begin to think not the law is just a bunch of rules but a gift. A gift from our Redeemer and is an aid unto our righteousness and is an offer come into glory come into beauty follow after not just a way but after the way and the way has come to give us his heart, and that's you, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that we'll come to your table and we would eat the heart of obedience. And we would come to the law and not say, I'm going to do this on my own because if any of us are honest, we know we're going to fail and we're going to fall down. But give us a son's heart, a daughter's heart, Christ's heart, to become like you, Father, and to be redeemed from our Pharaoh and from our Egypt of this time to be made
beautiful for your promised land and your ways. In Jesus' name.